The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing now? It's a Thursday at PFT PM. We're roughly a week and a half away from the return of PFT Live. July 20 is when we'll be back. Until then, I continue to give you updates on the things happening in the world of the NFL and also the broader sports world as it is relevant to how the NFL is handling the pandemic. And the big news of the day came from the game day protocol, finally hammered out between the league and the union. What they're doing, they're identifying categories They're reaching agreements in those categories, and then they're moving on to something else. We've seen the training camp protocol, the travel protocol. Today, what was made available unofficially to the media, obtained from a source with knowledge of the situation, the game day protocol, the rules that will apply in the stadium. And again, it it highlights the disconnect between all the steps that will be taken to keep everyone six feet apart, to keep people in masks, to keep areas properly disinfected. And it's all appropriate and it's all reasonable and it's all detailed, but it all collapses onto itself when it's time to go out onto the field and have 22 guys press together. And it's not as if all 22 were ever pressed together, but you at least have five on four or maybe five on seven or maybe six on seven up front who are blocking in tight quarters. J.J. Watt yesterday said he's got no interest in wearing the full face shield underneath his face mask. A lot of players probably feel the same way. The difficulty of breathing when everything you breathe out is bouncing off of that shield and coming right back into your face when you're exerting yourself. So every rule they put in place, to me, makes it harder to reconcile what's ultimately going to happen when it's time to go out on the field and play a game. And they are putting all their eggs in this basket. The idea that for the guys on the field, transmission of the virus will be much more difficult than it would be in a confined space. That if someone does get out there among the other players who has the virus, who is shedding virus, that is such a a lovely description. If you're shedding virus, in that setting, the thinking is it, it, it and floats away and it won't be concentrated enough for someone to get it. And I always thought you know, it, all it took was one of those tiny microscopic viral particles in your nose or your eyes or your, your nose or your eyes or your eyes or your nose, either one. But uh, uh, that, that's what they're, that's, and, and hey, I'm no epidemiologist. I don't know. They, they're the ones who have the incentive to understand how this all works at a microscopic level, but that's what they're pinning their hopes on. Because as we get closer and closer, it's, I think, as a practical matter, harder and harder to come to the conclusion that they will be confident that all the players who are out on the field at any given time are clean, are negative for the virus. And one of the 
sub-issues that created a stir today, the idea that after the game, no jersey swaps. Well, when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Why do you want to have any additional unnecessary encounters once the game is over? You don't need to have a prayer circle out in the middle of the field. You don't need to have the handshake between the coaches, whether it's the fist bump or the elbow bump, or they just give each other the finger, you, you know, you stay at least six feet away. And the swap, that's part of it too. But it seems ridiculous when you think about the fact that they're banning that ritual after players have been pressed together for three hours playing football. So it's just another example of, of how of how goofy it all is. And, you know, players like Richard Sherman were ripping the NFL for this. This was negotiated between the league and the union. And Sherman is on the NFLPA executive committee. So the union agreed to this. If the union insisted on jersey swaps being allowed, I guess they, they could have tried to do it, but there's no good argument for it. There's really no good argument for it. But the point is, I think, just shows how hard it's going to be to play football and not have virus transmitted from player to player. Once again, the hopes are being pinned on the idea that in an open-air stadium, or in a dome stadium with active and sufficient ventilation, and apparently there's high-level and high-tech systems in there aimed at thwarting an aerosol terrorist attack, that they'll be able to, to keep the air fresh and keep the air moving, and any virus that may be expelled from the lungs of an infected player will dissipate quickly and not infect someone else. We'll see. I look at it this way. Why are they thinking about face shields? if they're so confident that playing in an open air setting is going to be any better than, you know, being in a room with a low ceiling. We'll find out. We're going to find out in real time because it's not like they're just going to throw their hands in the air and say, screw it. They're going to try it. They're going to try it and see what happens. I think there's going to be a lot of that. Let's see what happens as the season unfolds. One thing that we are still waiting to see what happens, the actual testing protocols. That's one of the things I noticed when looking through the game day protocol. There's no specific plan in place for how players and coaches will be tested in advance of a game. Now, look, I was led to believe back in May by people who know what's going on, that there was a great deal of optimism that by August or September, there would be rapid response, reliable, readily available testing so that basically you could get your mouth swabbed and within a half hour, maybe 15 minutes, you would know whether you were positive or negative in that moment. And so fine, perfect. As you show up for the facility on a day of practice, as you show up for a game, whatever the case may be, you do that test, you wait 15 minutes or a half hour, you wait for the negative comeback. And if it's negative, you go in and you're fine. And that minimizes the chance that there will be people on the field who have the virus. Well, I don't think the testing is going to be at that level. It's not going to be at that capacity. There were bad assumptions potentially made about how prevalent and how effective and how reliable and how fast this testing would be. So I don't know when they're going to give that final test that gets evaluated for the up or down as to whether or not someone can play. But, you know, if it's Thursday, Friday, and you're negative then, I mean, it's got to be done so you get the results by Sunday morning. And if you do it too far in advance, 
let's say you do it Tuesday, you get the results Friday. Well, by Sunday, you may have it and you may be shedding virus. It creates a very funky timeline. And the question is, how often will players be tested? The players want to be tested every day, especially because they're concerned about false negatives. That's a, a separate issue. And that's a problem. Oh, yeah, you're fine. It's negative. Oh, actually, the person has the virus. He's asymptomatic. He's going to shed virus all over the place once he goes out onto the field. See, that, that's the problem here, because... Even though you will hear people in the media who have been downplaying this pandemic from the get-go, and I continue to believe there will be a special place in hell for these people who have actively encouraged folks to not take this seriously, even though people like that will say, well, the death rates are down. Well, okay, that's great, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you want to have it. That doesn't mean you want to go through the illness. That doesn't mean you want to worry about whether or not you may die and maybe you emerge from this process after weeks or months of illness, or maybe you have some long-term problem. They still don't know what kind of long-term issues having the virus can create for someone. So just because the death rate is down doesn't mean we just shrug at the thing and it's no big deal. That's one of the real concerns. And the other thing is you still don't want it to spread recklessly and without any containment. And that's kind of what's happening now. That's why we're in the president did really think back in March, April, and in early May that by the time we got to mid-July, the virus would be doing what some people wanted to just let it do from the get-go, wash. Oh, remember that? It'll just wash through. Well, that's what it's doing. It's washing through, and everybody's getting dirty. And it's jeopardizing our sports. It's jeopardizing our ability to have football. It's jeopardizing other levels, NFL, college, high school, there's not going to be, by all appearances, Texas high school football this year. Think about how big of a deal this pandemic has to be to get Texas to pull the plug on high school football. College football, who knows what's going to happen with that? Big 10 only playing conference games. Now, look, I, I, that's hardly a guarantee that they will play the conference games, but it's an acknowledgement that this is a year unlike any other. And when you look at what the Ivy League did on Wednesday, deciding to postpone its football season, fall sports until the spring, you do have to wonder why aren't the other conferences doing that? Richard Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, was very candid with remarks to USA Today that it's all about money, and it is. The major conferences and the major schools want the money that goes along with having these games televised. They're clearly not going to make the money that they ordinarily would make from the experience, from the ticket sales on game day. But you want the CBS, ESPN, whoever's got the, the various contracts for the various conferences, that money disappears. It's going to wreck budgets. And, and look, that, that's, that's bad. That's not a development. And you don't want to see a bunch of sports go away. And you don't want to see a bunch of people get laid off. But this is what happens when you allow college football to become this billion-dollar machine and the labor force is unpaid and you get yourself in a predicament like this, it becomes very awkward to move heaven and earth to have college football when the people who are supplying the labor are not getting paid for it. And they are taking enhanced risks when there isn't a standard set of rules and regulations among all the conferences and all the schools. That was something we talked about not that long ago. Notre Dame, they're being very careful, dotting I's, crossing T's, keeping the virus out of the football program. First week of the season, they're playing Arkansas. Arkansas has got different standards. You're only tested if you're showing symptoms or if you've been in close contact with someone who has it. 
So you may have a bunch of guys who actually have the virus and are asymptomatic and don't know that they've been in contact with someone who has it. You get all those players together, and then all of a sudden the Notre Dame team has it. So the lack of standards and I think the inability to have the same kind of resolve that the NFL has, because the NFL isn't making any bones about it. It's for profit enterprise and the players get paid. And look at the struggles the NFL's have. I think it becomes even harder to have college football in this kind of an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty. There is, I think, even though you'll hear people say, oh, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. You got a greater chance of being run over by a, a taco truck or but whatever the, the the examples, these ridiculous ditch, well, you got you're more likely to be hit by light, you're more likely to be hit by a flying golf club from Judge Smales. I mean, there's all these, yeah, but still, you have a virus that is running through the population largely unchecked. It does cause plenty of people to get sick. It does cause some people to die. And if you just allow it to just go free, it will make its way to the vulnerable. That's what you need to be concerned about. That's why there may be some NFL players who opt out, guys with families, guys with pregnant wives, guys with elderly parents who live with them who may have health conditions, players who are older and may have health conditions. You know, most of the college football players, I mean, you know, they, what, what chronic health issues do they have? When you get into your 30s, if you're still playing offensive line and you're 330 pounds, you know, and, and as I've said many times, many people are walking around with diabetes. They don't know it. A hell of a way to find out you have diabetes when you get COVID-19 and it makes you grievously ill or kills you. Oh, yeah, by the way, the reason that happened is you had diabetes. You didn't know it. If you'd have known it, maybe maybe you would have opted out for the year. Maybe you would have been more careful. And, you know, it just gets back to everybody refusing to be as careful as they need to be. I'm astounded. When you look around the world at how other countries are dealing with this, and, you know, I, I know we've got a segment of the crowd that is that very – Die hard USA, USA, and it's always great here, and we're always led to believe that. Look around. Look at how other countries have dealt with it, and look at how we're dealing with it. And if there is no football this year, if, if college football season is derailed, if NFL season gets started and then stops, the blame goes to everyone who failed to take this seriously, and specifically to the people in the media who encouraged them, who justified them, who excused taking it seriously. Go your, live your lives. It's no big deal. It's just the flu. You got a better chance of being run over by a, a runaway hippopotamus. That's the attitude that has allowed this thing to get to the point where college football season is in grave danger. Is there another kind? And for the NFL, it just has kind of a shoot feel to it. Like they're trying to put the best procedures in place. They don't really know. They hope it works, but we'll just find out. All right, one last topic. Let's talk about something football-related, the Cam Newton contract. The details of his incentives were reported today by Field Yates of ESPN.com. And it is clear, based upon the devices in that contract, for him to make the big money, the five, well, relatively speaking, the $5.75 million in incentives, the boxes he has to check to make all those incentives and ultimately to make the full $7.5 million. If he does all those things, dresses for every game, participates in 90% or more of the offensive snaps, makes it to the playoffs, makes it to the Pro Bowl, becomes the Associated Press All-Pro quarterback, 
wins the Super Bowl, plays at least 50% of every game along the way, doesn't get a buy because you need four playoff games at 50% to get the full million-dollar extra incentive at 250000 a game, I believe, or maybe it's 500000 a game. Regardless, we have the posted PFT that has all the details. Everything he has to do to get to $7.5 million, basically win the Super Bowl, and he's going to be the league MVP. And if they win the Super Bowl, good chance he's the Super Bowl MVP. And the end result is $7.5 million plus the ability of the Patriots to use the franchise tag on him for 20, 20 at a minute. At minimum, Cam Newton's agent, don't you say, look, at least, at least put a clause in here that if he gets seven million, seven and a half, six and a half, if he fulfills a certain number of these incentives, you won't tag him next year. Because that's the thing. If he has the kind of year that puts him in line for seven and a half million, he'd be the hottest commodity ever in free agency. You have the defending NFL MVP. Super Bowl champion, likely Super Bowl MVP, who's waltzing in free agency unfettered. Instead, franchise tag fully available. So, look, if they use the franchise tag, he gets, you know, 27, 28, 29 million next year, although the salary cap may screw things up given the pandemic. I'd rather have a shot at the open market. And it just shows how, how little interest there was in Cam Newton that that offer was put out there and Cam Newton was willing to take it because uh, if he does all the things, that get him to seven and a half million. It will be the best return on an investment for a sports contract in the history of sports, of any kind of sport, because the Patriots will have bought a Super Bowl championship for seven and a half million dollars. And one last thing about the Patriots offense with Cam Newton. I was talking to somebody about this today. Remember, Josh McDaniels drafted Tim Tebow. And Josh McDaniels has a Tebow-style offense that can be very effective running and throwing. And if the quarterback gets the right blocking, he's not going to be in the kind of jeopardy that he was in in Carolina when he was injured more often than he should have been. It's got the potential to work. Now, the relationship between Cam Newton and Josh McDaniels has to work, and there's some concern that maybe it's going to take some effort to get those two on the same page. But the offense itself, the Tebow offense that McDaniels put together specifically for the guy he traded back around one to get back in 2010. It could work. It could work well. And when you look at the hype video that the Patriots put on social media, something the Patriots rarely ever do when Cam Newton's signing was official, it's clear he's going to be the star. And it's clear they have high hopes for Cam Newton to take this team to the heights that Tom Brady had taken them to six times during his 20 years with the team. That's it. For this Thursday edition of PFTPM, we'll do it again tomorrow to wrap up the week. And then we've got one more week of PFTPM before PFT Live returns on Monday, July 20. Until then, check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. And we will talk to you again here tomorrow. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.